This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Professor Carl Ulrich. Welcome to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 111. I'm your host this week, Carl Ulrich. I'm Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, where I teach entrepreneurship innovation as well as product design. We have a really special show today, which is we're interviewing eight of the semifinalists of the Penn Wharton Entrepreneurship Startup Showcase and Startup Challenge. And so these are student entrepreneurs who are engaged in what's effectively a business plan competition. But these are very real ventures involving really interesting problems and challenges. And so it's a huge pleasure to have these guests in the studio today. And so I'd like to welcome first on, on this segment, uh, Raijing Zhang, who is the co-founder and CEO of VZ Technologies. Raijing, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. All right. So give us the elevator pitch for a VZ. Sure. Avizi is a medical devices company that's working on a product called Visiplate. Visiplate is a nanoscale aqueous implant uh, for the drainage of intraocular fluid in glaucoma patients. Now, glaucoma is the second leading cause of blindness in the world, and it currently has no cure. All right. So I think we need we need just a little bit on the science. So let's tell me what glaucoma is. I know I go in for that test every year or every few years. What What is glaucoma? So the test you go in for is a intraocular pressure test, mm-hmm. right? In healthy eyes, we have a system of fluid creation and drainage that nourishes our eye tissue. Mm-hmm. But in patients with glaucoma, the drainage system for that fluid is broken. And what Visiplate does is create a drainage pathway to reduce that fluid pressure that builds up over time in glaucoma patients. By draining the fluid and allowing it to be absorbed into other parts of the eye, we can effectively control that path towards blindness and okay. hopefully stop it. Okay, so if, if I just think about it in really simple terms, if the drain is plugged, then pressure builds up, and mm-hmm. the idea is that what happens, and there's also a failure to, to provide that, that necessary flow of fluid in the eye. Right. So when that pressure builds up, it puts a lot of pressure on the optic nerve mm-hmm. and that's what causes irreversible damage. Uh, I see. Okay. So so basically wh- when this is diagnosed, there's still an opportunity to intervene. Is that the point? Uh Yes. Okay. So you'd go in, you'd have this test, and there'd be some detection that, hey, your eye isn't responding, isn't draining the way it should be. You may have glaucoma. What 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 happens? What is the current status quo for how you treat it? So currently, once you are diagnosed with glaucoma, mm-hmm. um, you you get put on this treatment algorithm that starts with medications, typically eye drops and pills. Mm-hmm. However, the failure rate for that is about. within six months because patients fail to continue using those eye drops. Mm -hmm. They're difficult to use. um, It's difficult to remember to use them. Mm -hmm. So then patients who progress in their blindness need to get perhaps a laser surgery. And laser surgeries ultimately fail at a rate of around 47% Mm -hmm. uh, within five years. Um, Basically, in laser surgery, a little piece of tissue in your eye is excised so that the fluid has somewhere to drain to. However, that tissue ultimately grows back. Following laser surgery, you might get a manual surgery. Mm-hmm. It's what we call a trabeculectomy. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is when a surgeon will take you into the operating room and perform a procedure on you, a manual procedure, again, to excise some tissue. However, that also fails at a rate of around 50% within five years. 
<coughs> so that brings us to a category of devices where patients can elect to get an implant in their eye to help with drainage. Now, within this drainage category, um, there are two types of implants. One that is called a minimally invasive glaucoma surgery, basically very small, tiny tubes about the length and width of an eyelash mm-hmm. meant to help with drainage. However, those, um, those are an intermediate intervention before the last line of defense, and that's what we're trying to disrupt. The last line of defense are these very thick and large implants around the size of, say, a nickel or a quarter. Whoa that get put in the back of your eye, and they're meant to stay there forever. However, they ultimately fail at a rate of around 30%. Within five years, they stop working, and patients end up maybe with two or three in one eye. Yeah. Wow. And so those devices, if I am envisioning what they might look like, they're they're sort of a grate of some kind that allows fluid to drain out the back of the eye. Is that is that what they, the existing devices are? The existing last line of defense devices are a <clears throat> large plate that mm-hmm. fits either in between or under your eye muscles with a drainage tube that connects to the anterior chamber of your eye, the inside I of your see. eye. I see. So the plate is actually outside the eye, and it's got a pipe. On the surface of the eye. On the yeah. surface of the eye. It's basically got a, got a piece of plumbing then connected sure. inside the eye. <laughs> right. Yeah. All right. So what, what's Visiplate? So Visiplate takes that same model but bridges the gap between the minimally invasive surgeries mm-hmm. and these large plates. Mm-hmm. So we also seek to be less invasive, mm-hmm. but we're we're continuing this um, usage of a plate, a drainage plate. Mm-hmm. What we find is that having this uh, drainage plate within the eye is able to allow for uh, tissue spacing to occur mm-hmm. so that once you do have successful fluid drainage, the tissues don't grow back together. There's no scarring, and you're able to have this like greater drainage system that's mm-hmm. keeping your eye healthy mm-hmm. right, and keeping you from going blind. The thing about Visiplate is that we're 10,000 times thinner than existing uh, last line of defense drainage implants. And so how thick is it? So you can think about it as 1,000 times thinner than a contact lens. Thousand times thinner than a contact lens, or so the thickness like, of a soap bubble. Okay. Oh wow. So yeah. it's just a few microns thick. Yeah. It's one hundred nanometers thick. One hundred. So that's point one microns. Wow. That's really small. That's really thin. Yeah. And and what's the length scale? How how big are they in in length? So around, I could give you around surface area around thirty two millimeters squared. Okay. Mm-hmm. So there are a few millimeters on a side, maybe mm-hmm. a quarter of an inch, something like that, uh, a little less than an eighth or, or a quarter of an inch mm-hmm. in dimension. Okay. So it's a really tiny little flake, basically. Um, is is the way to think about it. It's tiny, tiny flake. How on earth could you place something that thin, a soap bubble effectively? Mm-hmm. Uh, how How is it placed in the eye? So we are working on a insertion device mm. to help surgeons place that into the eye in the right yeah. location. We aim to be implanted using a using the trabeculectomy that I spoke yeah. about earlier, this uh, procedure that all glaucoma surgeons are trained in. Um, it's relatively quick. It's in the front of the eye. So we're using we're aiming to use this common procedure, but pair it with an insertion device to make sure that our implant uh, goes where it's supposed to go and helps the patient preserve their yeah. vision. Mm-hmm. All right. So, uh, Ray Jing, it's sort of obvious to me you must be an orthopedic surgeon, right? Ophthalmologist. I know. Yeah, an eye surgeon. Yeah. <laughs> no, absolutely not. I am an undergraduate senior at Wharton. Yeah. Uh, that, was, that was the punchline. So, <laughs> uh, so, so where did this idea come from? This idea stems from all the way back when me and my co-founders were juniors mm. um, at Wharton. We competed. Which was last year. Last yeah, year, okay. yep. Yeah, we, yeah. Com- we competed in the 
uh, Y Prize competition. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about the Y Prize. Yeah. Sure. The Y Prize is a interdisciplinary competition hosted between the Mac Institute for Innovation and the Engineering School. And it basically challenges people from all across the university to come up with a commercialization idea for some piece of technology that's been developed mm-hmm. but hasn't been commercialized. Mm-hmm. And in our year, that piece of technology happened to be this Illumina nanoplate. Uh, but was there was the, was the application envisioned? Not at all. No. Okay. So what? So so an Illumina nanoplate. Uh, why on earth was it developed in the first place? And and describe if we were if we were the size of a few molecules and could get down inside it, what would it look like? What would the nanoplate look like? Yeah. Okay, so I believe it was first developed um, with the purposes of optimizing energy transfer or heat transfer. It was developed in the lab of Professor Igor Bargatin. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a professor of material science here at the university, mm-hmm. and so if, if and we alumina, were able... by the way, alumina is a ceramic, right? Ah, it's yes. alumina, alumina oxide, so yes. it's a ceramic. And at that scale, it's probably still flexible, and and uh, at that thickness, it's probably still flexible. So think of it as a it's a it's a very strong material, right? Uh, yes, and, it's relatively yeah, strong for that yeah, scale. For mm-hmm. that scale, and but um, so but the innovation was the ability to make uh, that a device at that scale, that thickness that has some structure to it. Is that right, or has some geometric characteristics to it? So Professor Bargatin's innovation yeah. was to be able to create a plate or a film at that scale that was freestanding. Yeah. So a lot of similar films you can think of, say, saran wrap. They crumple yeah. up. They aren't able to stay flat on their mm. own at all. Mm-hmm. And so that was Professor Bargatin's innovation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we took his technology and we thought to ourselves, well, we are interested in healthcare. We want to apply it yeah. in a device for the body. And using a very research-focused view, we thought to ourselves, what are the smallest implants in the body mm-hmm. and what can we do with this technology what can we improve well those turned out to be in the eye and in the ear and mm-hmm. for us three personally we cared a lot more about vision it's mm-hmm. such an integral part mm-hmm. of quality of life right mm-hmm. so um, we reached out to ophthalmologists here at the university um, we started thinking about glaucoma specifically because it's the second leading cause of blindness the mm-hmm. first leading cause is cataracts but mm-hmm. there are plenty of really great solutions for cataracts yeah. out there already but the the thing is, in glaucoma, the solutions are um, not effective, and there's a lot of potential for those solutions to be improved, and that's that's why we chose to go with this application. Yeah, and and then, but it's just I'm just having a hard time envisioning. So your two undergraduates, three, uh, three undergraduates, mm-hmm. going poking around the medical school, saying, "Hey, we got this little thing. What could we do with it?" Is that, or did you have a pretty good hypothesis about glaucoma before you went? And yeah, talked we to, had that hypothesis about yeah. glaucoma, so we specifically reached out to glaucoma experts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of my co-founders is a pre-med track uh, material science engineer, yeah. so we're very interdisciplinary. He yeah. brought the engineering aspect. Yeah. Tell me about that first meeting. Like what? What did the did you talk to a surgeon or to an, an ophthalmologist? Uh, yeah, our first meeting was with Dr. Richard Stone. Um, mm. He's absolutely fantastic. He's a professor now, but he has a lot of clinical experience mm-hmm. in treating glaucoma patients. Um, it was a little bit funny actually. We walked in, we had set up the meeting over email, and we sat down. And he's like, "Oh, so what do you study?" And I was like, oh, I study business, I study finance and management. And he was like, oh, you're one of those business people. And, and he and, kind of crosses his arms. Arm, cross yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> crosses yeah. arms. But then I said, oh, well, Brandon here is actually pre-med and he studies material science engineering. And then that's how we really got the conversation started. 
um, yeah, it's such a shame um, for there to be, like, I think, um, any barrier to conversation between the schools. Like, I think our experience showed that um, it's hugely beneficial to have, like, this interdisciplinary place right. where we can speak and share ideas. Yeah. Right. But but actually, you know, my my son's a junior at Penn, and one of the things that I really notice is that undergrads themselves don't really perceive these barriers. I mean, there's a little bit of clannish stuff going on, but mostly, I mean, you live in the same dorms, you interact socially. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's it's sort of ironic, but often it's the undergrads who are actually doing the interdisciplinary stuff mm-hmm. at Penn. And that's, I think, an awesome thing mm-hmm. about a university. Um, give us just a couple minutes on the FDA challenges. So the, one of the things about medical devices uh, you know, you're sticking something in somebody's eye, right? Mm-hmm. And that's sort of a big deal. So mm-hmm. what has to happen between now and the first human that can have this used in their eye? Yeah. So th- when we think about our FDA, our regulatory pathway, we, and given, you know, the limited amounts of capital mm-hmm. that any startup faces, mm-hmm. um, we really think about it in steps uh, uh, through which we can de-risk uh, this clinically, right? And over our last summer, we actually completed a biocompatibility preclinical study mm-hmm. where we implanted the material itself into a few rabbits for three weeks, and um, we got very good data showing us, oh, hey, this will not be harmful yeah. to a living body. Yeah. So the next so step- So is it just anywhere mm-hmm. in the body or you put it in their eye? In their eye. Yeah. So you mm-hmm. put in the, roughly the site in an animal yes. where it's going to go in a human. Yes. Yeah. And then you look for a reaction. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so you pass that. Yeah. Yep. Our next step is a efficacy study in which we see just how well the device will work. Um, and if we get positive results, then we'll start to initiate um, our endeavors for creating a human trial. And that would be a one-year human trial. The thing about Visiplate is that we're a 510K medical device, yeah. which means we simply have to prove we're as safe and as effective as a predicate. Yeah. So just to for our listeners who don't know what that means, what, it, what, you're, what that basically means is there's some other device that's providing essentially the same function that mm-hmm. you're proposing to provide. You just want to do it in a better way. Mm-hmm. So you don't need to show that it that the procedure is effective. You have to show that your device is equivalent to something that's already in the market. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And and um and and so just out of curiosity, so can you find rabbits with glaucoma or are there ways in other words, when you go to test the efficacy in animals, do you do it in the disease state or can you show in a healthy eye that mm-hmm. it does the right thing? Yeah. So a lot of times for drug development, uh, you do induce the disease in the animal. However, for devices, um, we've spoken to a number of contract research partners and yeah. uh, managers, and um, we're confident that we could show efficacy through a normal uh, rabbit. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And so I'm looking. So you graduate in a couple of weeks, right? Yes, I do. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. I Thank hope you, you pass those finals and everything. But uh, so what, what's your plan? I will be working on Avisa Technologies and building Visiplate here yeah. in Philadelphia, actually. Yeah. Well, four years ago when you came, three years ago when you showed up at the Wharton School, were you imagine, imagining you'd be an entrepreneur working on a glaucoma device? Not glaucoma, but I did come here to learn how to be an entrepreneur. Oh, you did. All yeah. right. So, so I'm that's, very that's happy awesome. it happened. All right. Well, Raging, thanks so much for coming in. It's super interesting. Thank you so much. Okay. I'm super lucky to be joined now by Philip Williams, who's the co-founder of Spectrum Scores. Philip, thanks so much for coming in. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Carl. All right. So I like to start, actually, the first thing I want to start with is just pointing our listeners to your uh, website. So you, uh, let's see, it's spectrumscores.org. 
right? Yes, sir. Yep. Okay. Now, uh, give us the elevator pitch for Spectrum Scores. Sure. So, uh, despite significant improvements in a number of social and political areas over the past decade or so, LGBTQ patients still face significant disparities in terms of their healthcare access and outcomes. Um, all the founders of Spectrum Scores are future uh, future physicians. And uh, we believe that it is the responsibility of healthcare providers to be working to end the trend of poor health outcomes for sexual and gender minorities. Uh, unfortunately, we've, we've found that it is far too often the case that healthcare providers are actually um, contributing to these trends, um, or at the very least, not fighting to end them. Uh, so, Spectrum Scores was founded as a way to empower LGBTQ patients to take control of their own healthcare by offering an intuitive ranking and review system for healthcare providers across disciplines on the basis of their LGBT competence. Um, by providing all of this information and leveraging the uh, collective experience of the community, we hope to be able to connect these patients to the best providers to meet their unique needs. All right. So, so Philip, give us a real practical example. And uh, so of a, of, a, of a, well, just give us a practical example. What are the kinds of challenges that LBGTQ patients face? Sure. And yeah. um, so... Uh, we found in our own research that the types of challenges that these pa- patients face when trying to access healthcare providers that are competent to meet their needs fall into two major categories. One is uh, simply finding providers that are well-meaning but under-informed on the particular needs of the community. Things like uh, PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis for uh, HIV, or uh, hormone replacement therapy for transgender patients. And finding providers to uh, meet these needs competently and in a knowledgeable fashion uh, is uh, inordinately difficult. The other is uh, simply, uh, you know, examples of overt discrimination. Mm. Um, a, a number of uh, a large percentage of transgender patients, in particular, but patients across the LGBTQ spectrum, uh, still face things like being outright denied healthcare. Yeah. Um, in a number of in a number of areas. And and what is the prevalence? So, if you were to interview. I suppose it varies quite a bit geographically, but but how big a deal, I well, guess, is the question. Yeah. So interestingly, uh, we've actually found that it may not uh, vary as, as dramatically as you would think across mm-hmm. geographic areas. So uh, uh, one of the major uh, spurring points for, for our work on this project was a study conducted by Lambda Legal, which indicated that nationwide about 56% of LGBT patients uh, have faced serious discrimination in healthcare settings. Mm-hmm. We wanted to see basically whether that was... Um, you know, restricted to certain geographic locations, rural areas, or is this happening right here in Philadelphia where we're, where we're training to be healthcare yeah. professionals? Um, so we conducted our own research, um, and we got, we got responses that indicated about two-thirds of, pa- of LGBT patients in Philadelphia have had um, trouble accessing wow. providers to meet their needs. And this is in a major metropolitan area. In yeah. a major metropolitan yeah. area, yeah. yeah. So uh, t- uh, now that we get the, the problem, tell us a little bit more about the solution. So how does, uh, how does it work? Sure. Um, so the primary functionality is that users will be able to search for providers, um, either by the types of conditions that they're looking for, the procedures that they do, or the specialty that they work in, in their particular geographic location. Um, and then a, a list of providers comes up, essentially like a HealthGrades or a ZocDoc um, or a Yelp for um, LGBT patients. We've then worked to conglomerate data from across a number of available databases so that we're able to feature those providers that are best able to meet the needs of the community. Once a a user has seen a provider, they can then review the provider on the basis of four uh, four metrics designed to um, reflect uh, LGBT competence in a healthcare provider. These include uh, providing a welcoming environment, having inclusive processes, their LGBTQ plus specific knowledge, uh, as well as uh, overall satisfaction, because these patients are patients too. 
Um, so by kind of leveraging the personal experiences of members of the community and combining that with a really robust database of information uh, conglomerated from across the web, um, we're hoping to be able to connect provider, uh, users to the best provider to meet their needs with just a couple clicks of a button. Yeah. So I, I, the Yelp analogy is a really good one. So I, I, I think it's pretty easy to imagine how, how this might work, and it, and it involves peer-to-peer communication, peer-to-peer information. Um, but talk a little bit about the provider side. So... So is does the pro, is the provider typically aware that this is happening and in fact participating actively in either courting the LGBTQ population or in 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 changing behaviors in order to be more more welcoming. Yeah. Sure. Um, so it, it's a range, honestly. Um, so some providers, uh, some users are leaving reviews of providers who um, maybe weren't even in the database to begin with. Yeah. Um, and those reviews are counted just as much as any other. Mm-hmm. Um, however, we've, we've found that actually providers have been incredibly receptive to the idea. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, well over 100 have reached out to us trying to um, upgrade their profiles on the site. Um, trying to reach these patients. And the thing is that, especially in a place like Philadelphia, we really do think that the providers that that have worked to gain the specialty, to gain the expertise that they need to work with this population, they exist. The problem is there's no way to identify them. Um, So it can really be a mutually beneficial uh, situation where the LGBT patient just wants a provider who understands them, understands their particular issues, and will treat them with respect. And there are providers who have worked to gain that expertise. Mm-hmm. So it's really been a mutual thing. We've been able to partner with a, a number of clinics in each of our launch cities. Um, and that's uh, one of our main ways of getting the word out to patients, in fact, is uh, directly from the providers themselves. Okay. So uh, take us back and tell us a little bit about the journey. So um, I, it, it looks like you, you went to Penn. Uh, yes, and as an undergrad, but you're now a med student, and it looks like a couple years away from getting your degree. Um, at what point did how did you recognize the opportunity, and then when did you decide, hey, I need to be an entrepreneur and actually go pursue this opportunity? While wow, I'm guessing you had nothing else to do, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you've you've kind of hit on it. The yeah. the problem was that we didn't have enough to do in medical school, yeah, so exactly. we, we really just wanted to you know fill our time. Up. Yeah, so that was yeah, the main thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So in, for, for me personally, um, I've always been interested in entrepreneurship yeah. between my time at Penn and uh, my time back at Penn doing the, uh, as a medical student. Mm-hmm. I actually pursued a degree um, in bioscience enterprise um, ah. in the UK, and that's where I kind of gained some of the skills and knowledge needed to um, help get this thing off the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, but when, when June and Naveen, who are my co-founders, uh, and I met was actually at the uh, problem night for a competition called HealthX Labs. Which and, is, and they're also, are they also Penn Medicine? They're, yes. They're we're, also we're, Penn Med students. Yeah, um, yeah. The three of us are all Penn Med yeah, students. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the, this competition called HealthX Labs is essentially designed to connect a Wharton student, an engineering student, and a medical student uh. um, to work on, uh, working on a medical innovation. Mm-hmm. We went to the problem night and found that we weren't necessarily the most excited about the ideas that were being thrown, mm-hmm. thrown around um, and decided to go a little bit rogue and work on our own project. LGBT health was not our initial idea. We yeah. went through home urinalysis kits, uh, universal blood pressure cuffs, yeah, wearables yeah, to prevent yeah, syncope, yeah. the whole the whole deal. So you so you came together first as entrepreneurs. First as entrepreneurs, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Without the without necessarily the focus. Uh, yeah. we, we'd never even met before yeah. this before this night. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, and and then where did this how where did this opportunity was it just were you running a, sort of your own tournament of ideas or where did where did how did the idea bubble up? Yeah. Um, so I'm personally a member of the LGBT community. 
community. Mm-hmm. Naveen and June consider themselves allies, and they've proven themselves mm-hmm. to be incredible allies. We've all been personally affected in one way or another by the challenge of facing, uh, challenge of accessing LGBT competent mm-hmm. healthcare. Um, and the thing is, we were as we faced each of these ideas, as we considered them. Um, really, medical school is difficult and yeah. a challenge all on its own. So what we kept realizing is that if we weren't really passionate about the idea Mm -hmm. that we were facing, that we were trying to address, it wasn't going to work. So we decided to really dig deep and figure out the problem we were trying to solve. Mm -hmm. um, And we wanted to help a vulnerable population get the health care that they've lacked for a long time. Yeah. So I noticed in the in the URL, and I'll go give you a, a plug again, it's uh, spectrumscores.org. Use that .org. So are you organized as a nonprofit? Um, we're actually not. We're, yeah. we're organized as an LLC at the moment. Yeah. Um, spectrumscores.org was, uh, you know, really just the cheaper option. Yeah. Um, so uh, when we're, we've been trying to really bootstrap and use every dollar for its... Uh, but but so spectrumscores.com was not available? It's a pretty obscure name. It yeah. is, yeah. Um, well, actually, it was available. It just cost too much money. Come on. It cost $9. Uh, it cost $1,900 at the time. Okay. It was available for sale. It was it available was, for okay. sale, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it may have been our own fault. I was okay. told that maybe looking it up too many times. Uh, yeah, yeah. I <laughs> don't know. know. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so that's interesting. So I... I you know, you you guys are all do-gooders, right? You, 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 you're, I presume you're going, you went to medicine because you wanted to save lives and improve health and all that. How did how did you think through that question of? I suppose there's there's two parts to the question. One is whether to pursue it as a for-profit venture, and and uh, to sort of take it seriously as a, as a for-profit venture, as opposed to a model in which you get this thing going on the side as physicians and sort of enable it as a nonprofit. Uh, did you ever think that through? Uh, and how did, and what, how'd you, how, what was your thinking? Yeah. Um, we have thought that through. Yeah. Um, and it's actually an ongoing discussion. Yeah. Um, so you kind of hit on it. We wanted, to, we wanted to approach this as uh, something serious that yeah. we were pursuing um, as a venture all on its own. We thought that there was interesting opportunities, and we continue to think that there are un- interesting opportunities in the for-profit space. Um, and we don't think we've closed off options to eventually transition or to spin off nonprofit yeah. uh, ideas. Um, so uh, it's an ongoing discussion, yeah. but we're trying to take advantage of what we think is the most open and the most yeah. uh, available opportunities. Yeah. So one just tiny bit of advice, actually two comments on it. One is I, I'm highly enthusiastic and supportive of using for-profit ventures to, to pursue social goals. I just think the, the mechanisms associated with financing, hiring, all those things are just so much easier in, in a for-profit setting. You, I, I think you should look at the domain a little bit because I think that do, .org, you might come across as being a little uh, confusing. Sure. And so that's just a little bit of advice on that. I and and more general advice to, to our listeners on that on that topic. We just have a uh, another minute, but uh, tell us how it's going, where, what the traction is. Um, it's going really well. Uh, so we launched on October 11th, 2017, uh, in honor of National Coming Out Day. Mm. Um, we launched in Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, New York City, and Chicago. Um, since then, we've built uh, a user base. We have about 2,000 people signed up for, for the site. Nice. Um, we've uh, gotten a lot of feedback from our users, and we've kind of iteratively improved the website, added uh, premium profiles, a uh, number of other features, and we're excited to be expanding both in terms of our functionality and, uh, and, and our geographic location. So we're, we're really excited about it, and we're looking forward to seeing where we can take it. All right, Philip. Well, it's super impressive that three med students can can get a business off the ground. So we're doing our best. <laughs> yeah, you're you're just overachieving, rate busters. <laughs> All right. I so that. so Philip, thanks thanks so much for making the time. Of course. Yeah. Thanks for having me. All right. So for more information about Spectrum Scores, you just go to spectrumscores.org. I'm very lucky to welcome first uh, to the studio. 
uh, Federica Longonotti Buitoni, who is the CEO of Collecto. Federica, thanks for coming in. Of course. Thanks for having me. All right. So give us the elevator pitch. Actually, before we do that, let me point our listeners to uh, your website. So it's collectoshop.com. And I'm going to spell Collecto is C-O-L-L-E-C-T-O. And then the word shop. Dot com collectoshop.com so if you're someplace safe you can check that out on the on the website okay Federica give us the elevator pitch so collect is an online luxury retailer that offers an unparalleled gifting experience and we do so by focusing on three things the first is a unique product curation the second is a specialized gift presentation and the third is a high touch customer service all right so let's start with who your customer is? So our customer is an affluent 30 to 45-year-old woman. Um, She has a very busy social life, very demanding schedule, which leads to the need for the service. So Collecto actually touches two customers in one transaction. So the buyer that purchases the gift and the recipient who received the gifts. And These two customers are very similar, which makes it easier for us to target both with the same marketing strategy. So we like to call the um, gift giver the social mother. So, Mm. again, she is a woman, affluent, 30 to 45 years old, um, and... She has no time to buy gifts, but is very detail-oriented. So she really values this experience and this curation of products to make it easier for her to buy a gift for her friend. And then we have the recipient, who is the young hostess, who loves to host parties, um, have friends at home. She's also female, same age range. Um, And again, really, really detail-oriented and values this you know, unique experience and unique products that we offer. Yeah. So I got to ask, I, I would have thought, maybe it's just, you know, a middle-aged dude thinking about this, that that the hard problem would be getting guys to figure out what to buy for partners. Um, but but you've got this model, this very interesting model where it's women to women. So what, what, how did you converge on that? Yeah. So we've done a couple of tests over the past um, year or so, all driven by occasion. So we did a sale for Mother's Day, a sale for the holidays, and a sales for uh, for Father's Day. And through these sales, we, we targeted both men and women um, and actually realized that 90% of the shoppers were women. Yeah. Uh, and the reason is because women are the household shoppers. You know, if, if, if her husband asks her that we need to buy a product for the mother-in-law, the father-in-law, or her sister... Um, it's usually the woman that buys it. But I, I agree with you that men really have this need. And I think um, down the line, um, I will cater to men as well. But I want to make the experience really, really good and perfection the experience for um, women's products and tailoring to the catering to the woman before then going to men. Yeah, I mean it. It offers certain advantages, right? Because you're not you're not in this in this challenge of designing for one user that's very different from the other user that mm-hmm. you're the end user, the the person who's going to get the gift. So mm-hmm. it's pretty interesting, actually. I had I had never thought about it, but it's a very interesting angle. So uh, walk us through the the experience. So I um I, I'm a would you call it the social mother? mother. All yeah. right. So I'm a social mother, and I and I have a. Uh, a birthday coming up 
for my my best friend. Mm -hmm. uh, what is the user experience? So she is someone that is very particular about what she wants to get her friends. So there's actually two stages of the business model. We're going to first um, create five different categories um, of of products um, within categories such as fashion, beauty, um, home decor. So we've also tested these categories. And so we'll have an interactive website where um, it's highly editorialized. It's like searching through a magazine because she, this woman wants to have fun while searching for this product. So she'll think about her friend and think about who she is, what she loves, and then um, relate her to one of the categories. So there's a category for beauty products is called indulgence queen. Mm. So if that's her case, then she'll want to look through the 20 or 25 products that are under this category. She will then purchase the gift. She can pick whatever um, hand uh, wrapping paper she wants, the ribbon, so she can customize the whole gift, including the presentation. She'll send us a, no a word of a note that she wants to handwritten, and then we'll take care of delivering on time for her friend's birthday. Okay, so t give us an example of what some of these products might be, and, and you're, you're using the future tense, so I'm assumed you haven't yet launched. Is that right? Correct. Okay, so, so how do you envision... The give me an example of a product you might envision. What I guess what I'm getting at is, is this primarily a search problem in which you're trying to find the right thing among readily available products, or is it that you are actually finding something that can't be found anywhere else, something really unique? So the yeah. second option, yeah. yes. So current currently, like this woman could go to a Saks Fifth Avenue, mm -hmm. Neiman Marcus, and try to see and find something for the for her friend. What we're trying to do is really tap into the market of brands that are have very limited presence in the U.S. market, um, both emerging and established brands, so small to medium. Um, brands that are either new and up and coming or are somehow well known by this customer. Uh, but it's not something that she can find in any other retailer. So yeah. we wanted to make to really curate a selection of products that is special that this high net worth customer who's the recipient can't go by herself when she walks into Neiman Marcus. And and what are you thinking about in terms of average price point? So based on the test we've done, we're seeing that the ideal price point is $150. Mm -hmm. Of course, this range will go up and down and will uh but we're we're trying to keep it between the 100 and 150 dollar range. Yeah. Um again, we've we've done some tests and that's really um the price point that has been working. Yeah, so as you've thought about this, I wonder, I mean that that's a high price point mm -hmm. for this kind of thing it strikes me and so I mean, the good news is it's a less crowded space probably. But how did you think about that question of how tight to focus that niche and how elite to make the product? Mm -hmm. um, so I, before coming to Wharton, I worked for a luxury retail company based in New York called Mode Operandi. Mm -hmm. um, they sell women's wear and, and accessories. Um, and I got to know this customer very well. So she is, again, the high net worth woman who has multiple homes, travels the world, and the average order value at Moda was $2,000. Yeah. Of course, 
women spend more on themselves than they spend on others. Mm. And this is something that I've done tons of research to really figure out what's the ideal price point. Um, but still, you know, they really value this this product curation and their this experience, and they will be willing to pay a mm. premium um, to get their friend something that is very unique that they've never seen. Yeah. And how do you how will you handle the supply side? Are you going to hold inventory? Like how many SKUs will you have and mm-hmm. that so forth? Yeah. And so we will have a three tier business model. We will start with consignment. Um, and the reason is we want to really learn what the cu- the customer demand and have enough data to then take the risk to um, to take to hold inventory. So the way consignment work is we'll work with smaller brands that want to tap into this market, want to reach new customers, um, and hold the product for the duration of the season. Um, but then by the end of the season, whatever we're not selling, we'll, we'll send back to the to these brands. Mm-hmm. And these will be more of seasonless products mm-hmm. so that they don't have the trouble of not being able to sell them later. Yeah. And I've spoken to a, several small brands that are, are similar to the brands that I want to target. And, they, um, and they're willing to work with this model. Once we have data on what the customer is liking, what are the purchasing patterns, what are the top sellers, then we will start investing in inventory and holding these products that um, have high demand, but also higher margins. Because with consignment, the margins range between 20 and 25%. But when you're holding inventory, they go up to 60%. And then lastly, the third part is creating an exclusive label. Um, I think that that's really going to drive our competitive advantage. Um, So we're going to work with artisans um, in the U.S., but also in Latin America, Europe, to create collections that are exclusive to Collecto. Okay, so we just have about a minute, but tell us where the idea came from. Um, so it, it really came from my passion for luxury and design, mm-hmm. uh, and by getting to know this customer from my pre- previous work experience and seeing how busy her life is yeah. and how there's not, not really a, a strong, um, luxury retailer that is focused on gifting. So I, I really thought there's a good need in the market for this. And product. and when you came to Wharton, I know you're you're a Wharton MBA student graduating in a couple of weeks. Were mm-hmm. you looking for an entrepreneurial opportunity when you came to school, or did this all just kind of fall together? Yeah. No, I have not recruited one second ah. in my two years of MBA. Wow. I was very very sure that this is what I wanted to do. That saved you a huge amount of time. I'm sure. Yeah. 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 <laughs> all right. Well, uh, we're out of time, but Federica, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you, Carl. All right. For more information about Collecto, you can go to Collecto shop.com. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation, and you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. Today, today we're talking to eight of the semifinalists of the Penn Wharton Entrepreneurship Startup Challenge. Our, our final guest is Thomas Cabot, and he's here to talk about, how do I say it, Thomas? Powdy Innovations. Powdy Innovations. I was wondering. It's just long and it's just short enough that I wondered if I said B O W T I. No, no, that doesn't. Well, it, is, it is an acronym, actually. Oh, it is. Okay. Well, we'll get into that in a minute. So, uh, Powdy Innovations. Okay, Thomas, give us the elevator pitch for Powdy Innovations. So, Powdy Innovations is making the world's first fully automated, standalone traumatic injury detection system. It activates when you've sustained a traumatic injury, and then instantly sends your location as well as injury information to rescue personnel. 
So it's basically I've fallen and I can't get up. Exactly. All right. All right. You you know, I wonder you could probably really. Well, actually, I wonder there's a certain demographic that knows that reference and it might just be the 50 something. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I get it. So you get it. Okay, good. Yeah. All right. So um, and and before we get into it further, I want to I want to point our listeners to your website. So it's it's P-O-W-T-I, com. And so despite the fact that you have the longer name, Pouty Innovations, you actually have the short domain as a .com, which is awesome. So uh, first of all, t- t- go ahead and tell us what the acronym stands for. Can you? Uh, this is satellite. You can say anything you want. Yeah, radio. absolutely. Yeah. So it stands for Point of Wounding Trauma Indicator. Wow. All so right. Military background, so I like acronyms. You like so. acronyms. <laughs> all right. Okay. So uh, let's start with... Talk, tell us about the device and how it works. Sure. So it's a, it's a wearable device, and we're using different sensors to detect traumatic forces on the body. So forces like a traumatic acceleration or a rapid acceleration from mm-hmm. a fall or the impact of a projectile, mm-hmm. motor vehicle accident, overpressure from an explosion. And when certain thresholds are exceeded, it activates and begins to send the location. And over time, our algorithms will also be able to, based on what forces it detects, give some indication of these are the injury patterns you should expect when you arrive on scene. Yeah. What are the raw uh, the raw data you can observe as acceleration, pressure, and temperature? Yeah, as well as gyroscope, um, oh, so r- rate of rotation, yeah. orientation. Yeah. Wow. So that's yeah. a lot of sensors. It is. Yeah. And so uh, t- talk about the physical properties of the device. How big is it and where do you wear it? Uh, so it's worn center mass on the body. So mm-hmm. it could be attached to a belt or to a safety harness mm-hmm. or a uniform. Uh, it's about the size of a hockey puck, a little mm-hmm. bit smaller. Mm-hmm. Uh, so fairly small, low profile, designed to be worn by people in mostly high risk job environments yeah. where they potentially are wearing other equipment. So we need to be conscious of integrating it into their existing systems. And yeah, so give us an example of the, say your initial use case. Who do you envision wearing this? Yeah, so we're initially targeting first responders, mm-hmm. so police, firefighters, emergency medical personnel, mm-hmm. and using it in their day to day jobs. And and maybe describe a scenario where this could be useful and why it's so useful. Yeah. Sure. So um, you know. My co-founder and I both have military backgrounds. We were both medical providers in the military, and we saw countless traumatic injuries. And unfortunately, in that job, we, you know, uh, all too often people didn't make it simply because we, we couldn't get there fast enough. Mm. And so an example, and really what was the impetus for creating this device, my co-founder was a firefighter paramedic. One of his fellow firefighters fell off of a bridge while they were fighting a fire. And in the chaos of putting a the fire out no one noticed that he yeah. had fallen yeah and you know a significant period of time went by before anyone realized what had happened so we did we talked about the sensors we didn't talk about what happens when the right. event is sensing sensed. so tell us what happens yeah, yeah so we're essentially instantly sending the gps coordinates mm-hmm. and the the wearer's information to mm-hmm. emergency rescue personnel mm-hmm. so if it's a first responder it may go directly to the police station or to the 911 dispatcher depending on the location uh, or also to the the ambulance itself and that's done on a on a cellular network so we use multiple communication systems okay. but the primary one is cellular all right and my last hardware question is what what how about how much do you expect it to cost so right now our price point is five hundred dollars mm-hmm. but it may go up a little bit uh, based on some studies that we've done people might be willing to pay more and is there a service component as well? Uh, not particularly. Okay. So there's a there's a subscription fee to yeah. cover the data transmission. Yeah. 
and that's eight dollars a month. Yeah, I'd call that a service component. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So I should have said maybe a subscription component. Right. Yeah. So, um, all right. Super cool. So, uh, the yeah, I get that you both had this experience. Where was the epiphany where you had this idea for this particular device? So yeah. it was actually that event that I mentioned. Oh wow. Um, yeah. So that happened in 2012 to my co-founder, mm-hmm. and then. In 2015, when I was getting out of the military, uh, he came to me with the idea. He had he was starting to file for the patents and said, you know, I need help making this into a business. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to come help me do it? And I was like, yeah. yeah, sounds amazing. Yeah. So you you came to Wharton. I'm, I'm looking at your bio. So you're about to graduate as well. And so you came to Wharton with this idea already. Yeah. It, yes. Yeah. Uh, although, to be fair, you know, from a military background, the business side of it was still foreign to me. So yeah. uh, over these two years, I've really d- dove straight in and, and figured it out as I've gone. Yeah. So I, I wonder just if you could comment on on how much extra stuff you had to go through. What's the right way to ask it? So I guess the question would be, if you were starting a business, you had an idea for a business, mm-hmm. is going to business school a reasonable f- first step or or not? Yeah, uh, It probably depends on your business yeah. and where you are personally in yeah. life. Uh, you know, The business school decision happened before I knew I was going to do the business. Oh, I see. Um, okay. I knew I wanted to transition into the private sector. But mm-hmm. then when I came here, I actually won a pitch competition in the first month or so of mm-hmm. school. Uh, you know, really with no business background. Yeah. And I thought, wow, maybe maybe I should actually do this. Yeah. And that was a lot of validation. Yeah. So. yeah. so in the course of that two years, you learned some things about market sizing and finance and so forth. So mm. tell me how you envision this business evolving. Is it is it will it remain in that vertical uh, forever? And or is there an opportunity for it to move into more of a consumer device? Yeah. There, there definitely is an opportunity. Mm. Uh, so I would like to move into industrial safety as a whole, mm-hmm. uh, commercial industry, elderly who live at home alone is a huge market that I think we can definitely address that the devices like the iPhone and I can't get up devices have not changed in decades. Yeah. Uh, and and I think eventually in the consumer respect, we can outgrow the hardware completely yeah. eventually. And, and that's that's a few years down the road. Meaning but. me, I, I, I had that. That was going to be my next question. I mean, your 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 mobile device has almost all these sensors, right? Right. right. And so and the communications. Right. So it, it could be an app. Or, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, so neither of you had a product design background or technology background. Tell, Tell us a little bit about the, or maybe the, maybe your partner did, but tell yeah. us a little bit about the process of actually getting this engineered. Uh, so a lot of trial and error, yeah. <laughs> uh, working with engineering firms. My, my co-founder does have a technical background. Oh, he does. he okay. worked for a body armor research and development company and has also worked with some communication systems. Um, but yeah, we've we brought on an engineer to the team. We're actually bringing on another, hopefully in the next couple of weeks. And... Yeah, also subcontracting with engineering teams and uh, manufacturing companies and really just building the whole value chain Mm -hmm. from scratch. Yeah. Uh, I mean, one of the nice things about this device, at least at first glance for me, is that it does leverage a lot of consumer uh, sensors and technologies, a lot of stuff that's out there in high volume, right. which makes it more of a systems integration right. challenge than having to invent too much stuff. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. The uh, the algorithm and signal processing is by far the hardest yeah. part. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so one of the challenges I suspect you must face is what's the go-to-market strategy? And I can imagine two approaches. The one I always think of as the Dropbox strategy, which is get somebody inside the 
organization to adopt and then try to convince their boss that they should buy it for everybody versus go go straight to the boss. So so which which have you taken or some some third? And, so yeah, yeah, it's a little bit of both. Yeah, um, with the. The military and first responder industries are very similar, yeah. very similar culture and buying processes. Uh, so there's a push and pull. Mm-hmm. We're primarily focused on the top level decision makers, mm-hmm. but there's definitely an element of appealing to the individuals. Yeah. Uh, these guys are willing to purchase their own equipment. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, if you look at what we as society are willing to pay to save a life, it's you know, it's millions of dollars typically. Absolutely. So I guess you got to look at the risk adjusting. What's the probability you're going to be in? Right. But but are, do they think about it that way, or is it sort of a uh, five hundred bucks? Geez, we ought to have everybody ought to have one of these. In yeah. commercial industry, they do think of it yeah. that way. There yeah. are very specific metrics that they're tracking on the military and first responder side. Not as much. Yeah. It's, it's more like they see the deaths every day and yeah. the injuries every day, and it's clear and apparent to them. So. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 uh, it's an it's an interesting question. I mean, I guess to people people are critical of that view of the world, the more you know analytical view of the world. But but it's really a question of which of these many devices are you going to choose. Yeah, and so there, you do need some logic to sure. it. Yeah. Absolutely. So uh, where are you? What's the way, where are you in the timeline, and how, what's the traction? So yeah. we're we're. Over the last several months, we've been finishing up some of the hardware development itself, and we're hoping to do some pilot studies this summer. We've mm-hmm. actually got Penn's police department signed up to do oh, a nice. pilot study. Yeah. Um, and so that'll be a field test where we're validating our algorithms, validating the form factor, and then we'll do some final regulatory steps and then launch at least regionally at the end of this year Yeah. with a nationwide launch in the spring of 2019. Yeah. So one of the questions I get a lot from hardware entrepreneurs is, sir, what's the minimum scale needed to get going? So so what would be what, – what do you think will be your first production run uh, when, you're, when you're out of beta, you're ready to sort of have a real product? So, yeah, yeah it's difficult to say. Mm-hmm. Um Primarily because we're targeting departments individually. Yeah. Uh, but an average department size for a, like a mid-sized city is maybe a thousand people. Mm-hmm. So we'd probably do two to three thousand. Yeah. Expecting to get one or two every month or so. Yeah. And and what so what kind of finance? What to just we just have a minute, but mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about your thoughts on financing. Yeah. So we're raising a seed round this summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're planning to raise two and a half million. Mm-hmm. And that'll basically carry us. That's an 18-month runway to get yeah. us all the way to nationwide product launch. Yeah. My experience, by the way, is you can probably produce in a batch of smalls 1,000. And I'm not sure I'd go bigger than that on yeah. the first yeah. one because yeah. you're going to have to eat some. You know, you, things are always a little wrong. But sure. uh, but it, it it's quite feasible to make about 1,000. And right. that's probably about the right about the right number. Sounds good. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, uh Thomas is super interesting and a a great story, and I wish you the best of luck week after next. Great. Thanks very much. All right. Uh, For more information about Pouty Innovations, you can just go to Pouty.com, and that's P-O-W-T-I.com, Pouty.com. I'd like to thank today's guests, eight of the semifinalists of the Penn Wharton Startup Challenge. Thank you for joining us on today's show. I'm Carl Ulrich. Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton, and you've been listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.